So Wallace, I'm super happy that you could make it. Talk to me and share a little bit about your process and, and your life in music. Um, I've been a long time fan of your playing and your music. And in fact, uh, when I was seven or eight, I think my parents gave me as a birthday present a Lego Maya temple and this CD. Uh, this Aww. is the drum with uh, from drum, yeah. yeah by Herbie, yeah. and uh, yeah, and then they went on uh, vacation and left me with my grandparents. So I had that Lego thing and that record, and my you know my grandparents they like to listen to Stan Getz and Oscar Peterson and, and those guys. So they weren't as thrilled as I was listening to that record. You know, as a kid, I was I started out being a drummer and I was, you know, drumming and Herbie and, and this kind of music. I was very drawn to that. So I, I really listened to that record a lot and it really means something to me uh, to this day. It's an, it's an important record for me. So your sound is a very familiar thing for me. Um, and and uh, I just wanted to tell you that and thank you for your inspiration thank you i appreciate that and i i would like to ask you about the, the process of that album how was it for you uh, working with herbie i think you you worked with herbie quite a lot before that but maybe we can start by talking about that record well that erica was interesting because at the time we were still doing vsop and um herbie took some time off to do this record that he was doing we didn't know it was called this is the drum and he asked me would i play on it and we went out there I, I, we stayed out in la for about a month and we uh, just had fun it was real loose it wasn't as programmed as it wound up sounding hmm. we just played a lot of things matter of fact some of the best stuff that happened is not on the record you know probably because it was a little too organic And um, but we had a good time. Yes, we rehearsed a lot. Herbie catered the rehearsals all the time, and we just had fun. Yeah. Mm. Well, what's it like rehearsing with him? It's great. It's three kind of rehearsals. When we was with VSOP, that was a very organic rehearsal. We were we would hang together all the time, mm. and then we would go to sound check, and sound check would be us playing and rehearsing. But then rehearsals would always stimulate new music uh-huh and that was the best rehearsals and then we had rehearsals with herbie's future to future band which is a lot like the um vsop band only it was more more plotted out mm -hmm. vsop wasn't really plotted out it was it was magic you yeah. know and then this is the drum was definitely a lot of us doing a lot of playing a lot of jamming mm. And uh, it was a lot of programming, more programming than any of his other stuff. Yeah. And you you also got some some uh, composer's credit on that record, right? Yeah. I'm wondering yeah. what that process was like, you know, writing something with Herbie. It was it was easy because it's funk. And what we did was going upstairs one day, they, they had a groove. And me and Benny Moppin went upstairs and came up with a, um, with a, with a, a line to go to it, you know. And I wrote half the line, and Benny wrote the other half. Yeah. And I think at one point, Herbie forgot that I did do that. And I think he thought that Benny had written that line and that they just gave me credit. No, I wrote that line. Benny actually wrote the last two or three notes yeah. on that particular one. Mm. You know, I even can tell you, 
the one that goes bop 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 it did. What I was thinking of was was Dizzy Gillespie's. Um, I was thinking of Night in Tunisia. Oh right, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I knew it. I know right now what it what the line is. You know. Yeah. Baba da dee da. That's what I was doing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I really love that song, Rubber Soul. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a nice one. Yeah. yeah, I like I like the one called um, Bubadi Da. Yeah, yeah. Herbie yeah. did that. That's Herbie's line. That's not ours. Uh huh. Uh huh. Ba 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 ya. That's Herbie's. Herbie wrote that. Mm. And it was bad. That was beautiful. Yeah. Such a collaborative uh, way of, of of making a record. That's that's really nice. Yeah, but I'm telling you, some of the best parts what didn't even get on the record. So, those parts. Um, You said they were very organic and and less yeah. pro programmed. That I, how how did that look in the studio then? I mean, how much of the band was, was actually playing together in the studio? What was done well, on top? those things? On those things, the band was playing, and the band consisted of um, Will Kennedy was the drummer, mm. and Will would come up with these this funky groove, and then me and Benny would come up with a line, and then Herbie would just play over it, and then they had a couple rappers and singers, and they would. They spontaneously came up with some stuff. It was really cool. Mm. And me and Benny were really flowing. We were flowing like it was in Wandishi, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But we were we were playing like it was in Wandishi, but we was giving the, the the melodies as though it was funkadelic, you know. It was it was nice. Mm. I'm wondering because you've worked so much with Herbie, and you know Herbie is my is my man. He's my my biggest hero on the piano. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm wondering about the harmonic lessons you got from him. Some some of oh. the uh, epiphanies you got through playing and working with him, and you know, whenever I hear you on your records, it shows that you're so much celebrating what you've learned from all the masters that you got to play with. You, you're, you're, sure right. you're celebrating it, um, and uh, I, I'm I'm wondering about, of course, a lot of guys, but I, I'm curious about Herbie first. Uh, you you just said it very perfectly. Herbie was all that, and I definitely celebrated that. It was it was magic, and Herbie found a simpatico ear in me because he would do these things, and I would love it. And I'd say, "What was that?" Yeah. And he was, "Oh, you want to know what that is?" And he would sit down and show me, and I said, "Oh man." You know, he was definitely the teacher. Now, I was definitely had nothing to, to add to it except for learning what he <laughs> what he was doing, and but I definitely digested it what he did and and what Miles did. You know, because Miles showed me a whole lot of stuff too. Of course. And I I remember one time I showed Herbie something that Miles had showed me of um a polychord with an inverted four. Hmm. Herbie said, "Oh." That's I did that. I, that that's one of, and I said, okay, all right. I'm not gonna argue that. Yeah, I'm not gonna argue. You know, but Herbie, Herbie, when we was with VSOP, and every time I was with him, Herbie was all about music. We we when we finish the the jobs, there would be girls and groupies around us. It could be a hundred girls, and Herbie wouldn't see none of them. All he would see is a piano in the in the hotel and he'd go to the piano and men would sit there hmm. and people would just be waiting around to see if we're going to be acting silly and Herbie would just sit spin up spend the whole night at the piano and we'd be talking about well what was that chord that you put here 
on this. And then he would show me and talk about why he did it. And man, and that happened with when I was with him with VSOP, hmm. happened with him whenever we were hanging, and especially with the Future to Future band. We would be on the um, in the bus talking about chords and how he inverted things and or how he would substitute things and. Can you go a little into detail about how how his concept maybe is in terms of uh, uh, substituting chords? Because my it, my my theory is um, that he so much understands the basic function behind the harmony uh, that he can reduce the. F those functions to very basic functions and then know so many different ways to address that function but um, and play something on top of that uh, which still resembles the the function but is nothing that's just random or anything well i'll tell you something that's true but herbie knows some things about harmony that's very advanced that i didn't even know you know like we would talk about a suspended two chord. And I said, well, what's a suspended two chord? I, I never heard of a suspended two chord, you know, mm -hmm. at the time. And he had to sh he showed me what that was. Herbie, you know, Herbie, yeah, he could reduce it to a simplest form or he can know it in his most advanced form. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you know, German six chords and, you know, why German six chord can function as a substitute two chord or or move it up a, a minor third and, and herbie herbie's herbie's just amazing and i will say this i couldn't go into a whole bunch of stuff about what he did because he's too it's it's too expansive hmm. to reduce it to a, a five minute interview or an hour interview yeah that's something you just you have to that's a course He's a course in music, mm. or or listen to him. What he does is in the music. Mm. It might not be utilized as as often, but it's in the music. It's definitely logical. Mm. But it's funny then if you if you show Herbie something that Miles showed you in in terms of harmony and that way how it's coming full circle, right? Herbie's a genius. But Miles was a genius, genius. He was, he might, he, Herbie might have added some stuff, but Miles Davis was definitely a genius. He never stopped trying to figure out possibilities. That's what he was. Yeah. He had learned from Bud Powell and, 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 and Thelonious Monk, you know, and, and, and trying to keep up with Charlie Parker harmonically. And he kept learning and kept learning, you know. And after he learned everything Monk could teach him, he kept wanting to, that same sensation. Mm. So he kept trying to find more possibilities. Yeah. And that's why Miles was such a such a genius musically. And I felt the same way he did by by loving him, you know. So my whole mission is still trying to get that same sensation I get from hanging with him or listening to him or playing with him you know being inspired by him and that's that's you know that's what i get from miles and that's what i get from herbie and wayne you know I, mm. you know those guys and tony williams you know i i read in an interview of ron carter that he says he said wallace roney is the one that understood the most 
from anyone what Miles's language on the trumpet was, you know, from, from the actual material. Really? That's and, nice. And I think that's very true. Uh, and and uh, I'm very curious about that. But I'm, I'm wondering yeah. about your understanding of his melodic material in terms of addressing a chord, but then finding notes that are maybe not necessarily the um, the most common notes you would think of in the first place, but the no those notes would just feel so right. I don't know how mm -hmm. to put it. I don't know how to put no, it. This is, why I'm, this is why I'm, I'm asking you. <laughs> well, first of all, what when they say I understand Miles' um, um, concept the most, what the concept is is music. Mm. That's what it, that's what it is. It's understanding the po all the possibilities in music, and when you understand the possibilities in music, then you can make choices that other people might not understand. You know, mm. and that's that's what it is. You know, it's not necessarily playing Miles's notes. It's playing notes that, like Herbie, that's there that emotionally give a different color, mm. but it belongs in the chord. You know. Like a raise eleven is a raise eleven. It's in the core because it's a because you made it a, a, a raise eleven, and you can look at a raise eleven a bunch of different ways. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then that's theory. That's theory. You know, when you play, you don't think theory. You think melodic. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. You don't think, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to play this right here. What you do, you just you now you're informed. You've got possibilities, and you know why the possibilities are there, and you can use them. I got a chance to be with him. You know I listened to every word he said. <laughs> yeah. I would, I, I would have wanted to be a fly on the wall in these conversations, you know. And I've, I've read yeah. so many interviews of you talking about them, but I still mm -hmm. want to know more, you know. Uh, especially yeah. when you talk about those last three days that you spent with him in Montreux, Uh, where you said he's, he, he somehow put all of music, all of his, his life experiences in those three days. Well let, me, well, let me put it like this. I had been hanging with Miles Davis since 1983. That's right. when I first walked into his apartment. Sisley's apartment, actually. From 1983 to 91, I got to learn a whole lot. I got to be around him a lot. And I got to be able to play with Tony Williams and take things I learned with Miles and put it right on and, and try it right there and or try it my way. But when we were in Montreux, what I was trying to say was he didn't just talk about music. He talked about he when I was with him before, he didn't always talk about music, but he talked 90 percent about music and and life. This time he was telling me about his father. He was telling about his upbringing. He was telling me about his friend. You know, he was like giving me a narrative from the beginning, which I didn't understand. It was like it was like confession or something, you know. <laughs> and you know, everything he ever told me in, that, in all that time, he was telling me that, but plus other stuff, you know, personal, real, real, real personal stuff. And none of the personal stuff was no kinky, dirty stuff. Like people want to think it was none of that. Yeah. It was just personal stuff like his love for Francis, you know, or he, you know, and, and telling me, you know, or one day he was looking in the mirror Well, we were talking 
and something fell and he said oh that's just my mother she's trying to get my attention you know wow stuff like that and we would talk about coleman hawkins you know we i mean we were talking about everything all in three days whereas before it was in like seven to eight years you know what i mean hmm. yeah that's what i meant wow i'm really uh, amazed by um your your ability to find new talent uh, and really interesting players that uh, seem to be on a similar seeking mission like you were when you were coming up I'm wondering what your yeah how how you go about it when you mentor and 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 um, really take somebody on and then lead lead a band. I go out and listen to a lot of people, and a lot of people come and want to play with me, and I have a certain need that I have to have in my music before I can even get to a certain thing. And a lot of there's a lot of talented young musicians out here, but a lot of them don't have the the broadness of understanding to even start playing the, the way I want to play. Mm -hmm. So I go seek out people that's really trying to have a total understanding of what the masters has done, not just the current masters, um, train and Wayne and uh, Charlie Parker, Don Bias, Lester Young, you know, mm -hmm. the total thing. But, They don't play. They 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 start. They begin where the where the music left off, and if they don't understand how to do those things, then that's where I come in. I start to teach them from that point the things that I learned from a Wayne Shorter or a Herbie Hancock or Chick Corea, you know, or McCoy, and you know, I start help filling in those gaps. Or stuff I learned from Jay McShann. You know, I, I played with Jay McShann. Mm. You know? Wow. Yeah. So, or Walter Davis, you know. Some some of the guys don't see the link between Bud Powell and Herbie Hancock and Nat Cole, you know? Yeah. So, you know, you had to say, well, check this out, you know? Like, I heard Nat Cole play block chords before Red Garland or High High the Moon, you know? Hmm. With the same way Red did, you know. So you got to have a full understanding of those things, those things that Horace Silver did, you know, because those are the things is the reason why Herbie is so great, because he has he, he he absorbed all that and took it further, you know. And then I tell the guys, after you absorb all that stuff, come out you. Learn all of it, but come out you and then try to add. Well, first try to utilize it. Don't mm. not use it. Use it, but then try to see if you can add to it. Wow. Yeah. Um, the, I, I think the last guy I was really impressed by that, that I think you found was uh, Emilio Modeste, the, the, young, the young saxophone player yeah. in your group. He's just yeah. unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. How did you find yeah. him? He found me. Huh. Because he, you know, he, he was looking to play a certain way. And actually, he was looking to play a certain way. And my saxophone player before him is ben. the one that told me about him. Yeah, Ben. Yeah. And Ben said, you know, Emilio's, this little guy, Emilio's playing. And I knew Emilio because he was friends with my nephew. Huh. Yeah, okay. But well, one day, Emilio 
just started playing. He was searching for a way to to understand what Wayne was doing more, more than the average person. You know, because people take aspects of somebody, play a little of this, a little of that. Amelia wasn't doing that. Amelia wanted to go all the way in right. there. So I heard him. I said, well, come on, on over to the house. And he started coming over for two years, you know. Mm. And we and we talking and he wasn't quite ready, but he was he was there. He was going there. And then when he got when he was ready, I debuted him at a um, um, NJ Pack. And then um, after that, I took him on the road with me, and he's he's been blooming ever since. Hmm. Yeah, I just heard a little bit of from your new record. I think there's a promo track out there. It sounds beautiful. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, how's the status on on Universe, the, the well, record with the unreleased Wayne compositions? Yeah, now that's amazing, but we haven't. I, I think they're they're doing a they they're doing a documentary on it. Yeah, I hope it gets released uh, at some point soon, and uh, we all get to enjoy it and and study it. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. What did you think when you heard it? Well, I couldn't believe it. I was so curious, also how how this music came to Miles then, and why back then it wasn't recorded. You know. Well, the reason why it wasn't recorded. Is right when he Wayne wrote it, the band started breaking up. Right, Miles okay. had fired Miles had fired Herbie, and then um, Ron had left the band. Well, I think Ron left first, then Miles fired Herbie, and then Tony Williams left the band, and then he still had Jack and 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 Dave, and but then Miles and Wayne got into a riff in 1970, and Wayne left the band. Yeah. So and and well, actually, I think Miles fired Wayne to be honest, and and or whatever happened, Wayne got depressed. He put the music under his bed, and Wayne actually took off a year from playing. There was a year when Wayne just didn't play. Well, which year you know? was that? 1970. Huh. He went. He he told me he went to the to Antigua or something like that, or went to one of the islands and just chill. Huh. <laughs> you know. I love yeah. that song, Antigua. Yeah, I think it's Antigua that he went to. He went somewhere, and he just chilled. Mm. And then he came back, and then he started a band with McCoy. Yeah. And then, but that didn't work out. Then he, then he got Joe Zavano, and that's how Weather Report was born. Yeah, I have one track of the of that collaboration with McCoy. You got, yeah, it's called Creation. You yeah, have that? that's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, see, nobody realized that. It was, McCoy was there before before Joe Zavano. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it made sense because also these, these amazing records by McCoy with Wayne. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just makes sense. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But that's why the music wasn't, wasn't um, recorded. But Miles always thought about the music. And the reason why it came back out is right before Miles died, When we did the Miles at Montreux thing, Quincy Jones went to Miles afterwards and said, "Would my ask Miles would he do it? Would he want to take this on the road?" And Miles said, "Yeah, sure, as long as Wally come with me." <laughs> and, Quin and Quincy said, "Of course." So now Miles had committed to do the Guild, you know, the big band thing, and then he saw Wayne Shorter on his birthday, August twenty fifth, 
mm. at the Hollywood Bowl. And Miles thought, well, man, if I'm going to go out and do this, do, um, do this music with a big band, I want to do some new stuff, too. So he went to Wayne and said, whatever happened to that music that you wrote for us, you know, back then? He said, find it. Let's do it. And that's what happened. But right after Miles said that, you know, he went in the hospital hmm. and he never came out. Wow. And that's so that's why Wayne went to look for the music. And Wayne didn't find it until 2006. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And that's when he when he contacted you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm very glad that you took on this mission and that that you stayed with it. It's amazing. Yes. Yes. And everything that yeah. I've heard, you know, there's also some stuff on YouTube, and you know, there was an NPR thing I think with Christian McBride as a host or something. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Thank and each time sounds different. Also, it sounds like the 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 piece isn't set in stone in a way. I mean, the, the composition is beautiful, of course, right. but but the way you guys treat it seems very much in the moment and very much uh, uh, like it's a work in progress still. Exactly, because that's the way it was. That's the way he would have wanted it. And that's the way Miles would have wanted it, because actually it was written for Miles. It's, it's, it's a concerto for Miles and the quintet. And Wayne probably has a little feature in it, but it's really just it's, it's written for Miles. Yeah. How how is a is the connection is there any connection to the falling water those four takes because the instrumentation seems it's similar, similar but it's not it's not the same thing but it's, it's not yeah it's not the same thing um, is Wayne influenced by Gill maybe a little bit mm -hmm. and, and and he had his own sensibility too and that's where and the similarity is there plus both Gill and Wayne was writing for the Miles Davis group at the time. It, they weren't just writing for Miles for Miles. They was writing for Miles with Tony Williams in mind on drums, with Ron Carter in mind on bass, with Herbie in mind. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, so Falling Water takes on that kind of impressionistic kind of thing that the band was was pioneering anyway, you see? And so does so does these things, you know. Mm. I always felt that after a while, those multiple harmonic instruments in Miles's music, like with with uh, Zavinol and Chick and Herbie and, and Larry Young and stuff, they somehow a little bit took took place of the of that grand format that Gil Evans sometimes wrote around Miles, you know. I agree. Yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Gil Evans said in an article that I read, the reason why he didn't write so much for Miles anymore because he had Herbie Hancock. <laughs> wow! Also, those this uh, the what's the that work called that they wrote for the for the theater in? Uh, yeah, the Barracudas. Yeah, I love that recording yeah. too. That's oh, amazing! Amazing! Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know what also really moved me is when, when I heard uh, that that record that was shelved after a while, the Puccini record that uh, Bob Belden did. Because well, see now, there's a whole. There's an interesting story to that. Because Miles wanted to do uh, 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 Tosca, right? Right, and what happened was when Miles died, me and Tony Williams 
was going to do Tosca. Wow. And Tony went to Michael Cascuna and told and Bruce Lumville and said that this is what we wanted to do. Michael Cascuna sent, said, well, we think Bob Belding would be the producer, be the best producer for it. Mm. Well, what happened was Bob Belden went and tried to do Tosca on his own and cut us out of it. Hmm. It was Tony and mine idea. And what happened was the um, the family, the estate didn't want that, so we had to do Turner Dump. That's what happened. So then Bob went and called us one day and said, we were in L.A. He said, well, come on to the studio. We're going we're gonna to cut some tracks for Turner Dump. And Tony said, what are you talking about? We're going to cut tracks for Turner Dump. I didn't write anything yet. And Bob said, well, I got some ideas. And he went and did it. And he just put Tony on one or two things and me on one or two. Tony was very hurt by it. Wow. Okay. Yeah, because Bob basically stole our idea. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's a very bad, you know, me and Bob Belden were close friends, but we fought a lot because he stole a lot of ide- those box sets. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't know any of those things. He always used to call me. And asked me to, you know, and then he would put his, he would say it like he was an authority. He never met Miles in his life, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And never gave me credit until the In a Silent Way one he gave me credit for. So when you talk about Turner, though, that's what it was. That was a, that was the Blue Note Records, Bruce Lumville, Michael Cascuna, and Bob Belden's undercutting me and tony williams yeah how how would if you how would you have done it we never got a chance to try of course but i mean we never got a chance to sit down and plot it i don't know how i would have done it. i see i see me okay. and tony went like me i was at tony's house and you know when we talked about it we were in paris when we got back to the states we drove to philadelphia to play a gig and we discussed it Then I went up, um, then we were out in California. I went to his house. That's when he gave me his drum kit. And we talked about it some more. And that's that's as far as it got. Hmm. Before we looked up and Bob Belden had already wrote some stuff and used other drummers and other trumpet players. Wow. On our idea. We never, Tony was so pissed. He just, that's why Tony left Blue Note. Wow. Okay. See, people don't understand. Next thing you know, Tony was on ARC, um, whatever. He left because he got mad. He got tired of that stuff. Yeah. They stole another one of his ideas, too. Tony had another idea. He wanted to do two two more records. He wanted to do one with me and Hank Jones and Sonny Rollins and Ron. And he wanted it to be a remake or the next version of Cannonballs or something else. Wow. Yeah, and then he also wanted to do him and Ornette and Cecil Taylor. Trio? Trio. And then we looked up. They stole that and and did they did Cecil, Ornette, and um and Elvin. They say that those things hurt Tony to his heart, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's understandable. Wow. Yeah, these were his ideas. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I suppose that changes you a little bit in terms of how vocal you are about your ideas right now, or in the in those years after that, right? Yes, it does. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. yeah. But it, it changed you you about how you vocalize your ideas. But it broke Tony's spirit. You know, it really hurt him. Mm. It really hurt him. You know, 
starting with Turner, though. No, probably starting with with Miles stealing John McLaughlin. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's probably the first thing that broke him down, you know. But then um, now when we did Turner, when we were going to do um, Tosca, then Turner, though, and and Bruce Lumble and 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 them stole it. That was that was hard on him. It, yeah. it made me angry too, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How about how how did you get a hold of Utopia? Wayne Wayne. So those are the things that Wayne sent me. He sent me uni Universe Legends, a tune of five four. And then he asked me to do the theme from A Deadly Affair because that was the last arrangement he wrote for Wayne, for Lee Morgan before Lee Morgan died. And it turned out to be a pressing thing because Lee died because, you know, his wife shot him. Huh. But Wayne couldn't find his arrangement for Daily Affairs, so he asked me to do it. Oh, and then he also asked me to do Devil May Care because that was his first solo with Miles. That was yeah. his request. And then he and he sent me Universe. And Universe was just quintet. And he said, you you know, he, he knew that I understand stood things about how to make his music work. He said, do what you do, how, do, do with it what you want. Hmm. So that's how I got those pieces. I really found it interesting that um, maybe, maybe tell me if I'm wrong, but uh, those changes on I Love You. Um, yeah. Uh, most of these changes I thought I heard before in, in Herbie's uh, reorganization yeah. and I love you. That's where I, I got it from. But yeah. you've changed. But I, I might you've have changed. changed yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I what I wanted to ask you. You know, your process of then changing there. This is actually a pattern that I find more and more in your music. Uh, what I said before, you're celebrating your lessons or your your um, the the stuff that you got from your masters and then peers, obviously too. But then you take your spin on it, as you said before. You know, do 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 it you. Uh, right. Uh, And right. the same thing happened with I Love You, and then you infuse it with black comedy. I thought that was very, very uh, cool. Yeah, I did. But let me tell you something. See, my life is, is trying to keep getting better and utilizing things. And when I was with VSOP, that was the beauty of, of VSOP. Everything that they did, they utilized. They would, we would utilize that on orbits paraphernalia you know what i mean who came up with that arrangement that was the whole band did that okay. they just combined they combined orbits and par instead of swinging on orbits and playing the chords we just went straight into paraphernalia yeah you know it was great you know but it was so much information at their disposal they could take the, a form like paraphernalia and put the same time modulations that was on black comedy on that you know and just keep going until the end of the song you know yeah that's what young guys don't take those things and study it and put it part of their language the way they hear you're not going to get that you know so i'm constantly frustrated with the musicianship of the times yeah right maybe you can get into what you expect from a drummer Well, from the whole, whole, not just the drummer, even the, the pianist, the, the bass player. I mean, you know, like I said, so you if you look at if you look at something like black comedy, 
it starts in six for for three bars. Then it swings for for a bar. Then it's a bar five, and then it um swings for four four again for two bars. Then two more bars. Then it's four four with a six four feeling against it. Then it's five five seven. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah. And then back to six one. You know. Then then it circles. You know what I mean? Mm. And if you do that on on any tune. It's just a time modulation, you know, and you can play all the things you want via that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Learn it. Learn some of the stuff that Elvin did, you know, what Train did on Nature Boy, you know? Yeah. Or, or on um, the beginning of um, Brasilia, not not when they start swinging. What they, you know, I mean, if you learn these these techniques, you could use them on on anything, you know? Yeah, you know, it's something that Herbie did on Possibilities on the Paul Simon song. Man, why I don't understand why people don't take it and learn it and and apply it. You mm. know, that's what lessons are for. You're not copying; you're making use of these lessons, and you can take it, do it your way, and then you can buy. You can take it and take it further. You might come up with a whole different. Idea. You might play it backwards. You might not. You might just play. There's so so much possibilities, but you can't be lazy. You got to be willing to study. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I see. That's actually <laughs> you're covering a lot of ground, which are on my notes already. You know, the first note that I wrote down for this interview says "ultimate student." You know, whenever I see you, right, right, you. <laughs> I have the feeling you're the ultimate student, uh, and now right, obviously right. master, of course. But you're you're still searching and you're still studying what the masters have done before before us. Miles once said, "If Dizzy could do it like this, I could take the same thing and do it this way. Right. You know, take it uh, take it the same way, but use it differently, or I can invert it. You know, or Woody Shaw." One thing I admire about Woody Shaw was people seem to see Woody as an individualist, but Woody really wasn't. Woody really did come from Freddie Hubbard's conception, you know? Yeah. But he took an aspect of Freddie Hubbard, the force that Freddie was doing, and developed it so much, it became his, you know? Absolutely, yeah. You know? Hmm. Did you also study a little bit with Woody? Yeah, Woody was a mentor, yes. Huh. Yes, yeah. But Miles was the greater mentor, I got to tell you. I used to hang with Miles, and when Woody or Freddie would see me, they would say, Freddie would say, I hear you've been hanging with Miles. I said, yeah, what, what's he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> they all would ask me what Miles was showing me. Woody would ask me, so what did, what did Miles teach you? You know? I'm very amazed also by, by your sense of time. Time is 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 part of existence. You know, everything we do is in time. Whether it's we breathe, we walk, we step. You know, everything is a something in a, in the infinite thing of time. I learned and and I play. I was blessed to play with the greatest drummers that ever existed. Hmm. I played with Art Blakey, Philly Joe Jones, Elvin Jones. Roy Haynes, Tony Williams. I mean, yeah, 
you know. <laughs> there's there has been no no one greater than those after that. There's been very good, but there's been none greater. Were there, you know, any rhythmic lessons that you always keep in mind uh from from those guys? Well, let me put it like this. If you want to say rhythmic lessons, there was definitely rhythmic discussions mm. because I was always interested in everything they were doing. It wasn't like they sat me down and said, now, Wally, I'm going to teach you how to do this. It was more like, man, that was amazing. What was that? Yeah. And that's how I learned from those guys or learned what they were doing. And one thing I realized with all those great musicians is that they had a very expansive view of time they were always expressing the time and it was always dancing in their symbol beat you know and they, each one of them had a different symbol beat although i think art blakey was more the father of all of them roy haynes philly elvin and tony yeah but they all expressed the time and they all were very expansive with it they all were, they all could stretch the time snap it back or shatter the time and bring it right back you know Hmm. Yeah, they were. They were. I, I played with the masters, you know. <laughs> yeah, and also you. You play. I, I mean, all of them were great band leaders, also. You know. Well, Tony, Tony, and Art Blakey for sure. Yeah. Roy, Roy was definitely a great player. I, I don't know if he was a great band leader. He became that later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Philly Joe, you know, I don't know if he was such a great band leader either. And Elvin was, but I would say Art Blakey and Tony were definitely trendsetters. Herbie and, and Wayne, those guys, also in, oh. in terms of leading a band, yeah, that, that yeah. must leave some impression on somebody, you know, uh, coming up with them. And then I think you're you're taking what you got from them, you're taking it further. Yeah, I am. But I think as far as leading a band, I'm probably the most influenced Bob Miles and Art Blakey and Tony. Yeah. You know, they didn't just lead a band. They led the music. And in both of those, in all three of those cases, these guys were great instrumentalists, great artists. You know, because you can have a band leader, but he's not such a great artist, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. But he can, he's a good leader. These guys led from their instruments by example. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They led by example on their they they led the charge with their horns or their drums, you know. And and, and influenced which way the music was gonna go, how it was gonna be shaped, you know. And I learned that from those guys, you know. I'm sure you also have some concerts that you went to when you when you were coming up that still are with you as a as a very strong uh remembrance because When we're when we're young and coming up, everything we take in is a, is very very uh, everything leaves a you know very big impression. Uh, yeah. And I just I know I know it for myself. I I have certain go to memories that I go to in terms of when I seek inspiration or a reminder about what I like about music. And I I wonder if you can share some some memories of you. The first concert, one of the most important concerts I ever saw in my life. I saw Miles Davis, Weather Report, The Giants of Jazz, and George Benson on the same concert, 1972. Wow. That was wow. an amazing concert. Miles opened it up. Al Foster had just joined the band, and he had a band with Carlos Garnett 
uh, Cedric Lawson, Michael Henderson. It was still basically like a version of his quintet. You know, it was the last of when he had a piano player and his or, or keyboard player in his band, and Al Foster and M. Tume. You know, and and then after after he played, then Weather Report had Eric Gravatt and Miroslav Vitas and Wayne and and Don Romero and Joe, and they were. I mean, Wayne was. You know, he was into his Coltrane thing still, you know. And then George Benson came on after that. He was promoting White Rabbit. His drummer didn't show up, Sherman Ferguson. But Philly Joe came and subbed for him that night. Wow. And that was amazing. That's the first time I saw Philly Joe. And then the Giants of Jazz came on and played with Dizzy, Sonny Stitt, Curtis Fuller instead of um, Kyle Wendy, Al McKibben, Thelonious Monk. And Buhana. Wow. And they stole the show. And Miles, I loved Miles. I mean, Miles was, was, that was my idol. But Art Blakey played Night Tunisia and took a solo up front and then took a solo up at the end and upset the whole place. <laughs> the people rushed to the stage. Maynard Ferguson was the last active play, but he didn't get a chance to play because they stopped the show. That was an amazing concert. Second concert, well, probably one of the greatest trumpet playing I ever heard in my life, was 1983, Miles Davis at the Pier uh -huh. in New York City. That night, Miles was promoting Star People. Yeah. And he had Tom Barney that was in the band. He, Marcus had just left. Al Foster again. Bill Evans. I think Mike Stern. They played one song, then they played a blues, slow blues. Hmm. Miles took a couple courses and he was great. And then he let Bill Evans play a little on the flute. Then he stopped Bill and came in and played again. And it was amazing. And then he double time. And all of a sudden, he, they swing it. I mean, double time. And Miles was playing. And now, at this point, Miles had been playing for 10 minutes. And then they double timed that. So now Miles triple timed it. And it started to sound like walking from. Um, from miles in Europe, you know, ding, 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 ding. And Miles started playing, and, and he played. I never heard nobody play that great in my life. He played so amazing. And he looked back at Al. He put his fist up like, come on, let's get it. And and Miles kept playing stronger and stronger. They looked back at Al and said, come on, Al. Wow. Oh, that was amazing. And, okay, and then another concert, I saw Freddie Hubbard and James Spaulding play together in Mount Fuji with Wayne, with Herbie and, and Bobby Hutchison, that band, and, and Joe Chambers and Ron. And that's the best I ever heard Freddie Hubbard in my life. Huh. Another great concert I heard was when I first heard Woody in 1975 with Junior Cook. Hmm. That was amazing. That's when I first heard Woody Shaw, because up until that point, I heard Woody Shaw when I, you know, I was 15 when that concert was, but I had been listening to Woody on the Hard Silver Records and on Roy Brooks' record, and I didn't really like him. I thought he was too blary, hmm. you know? But I heard him that night with Junior Cook and Lewis Hayes. It was the Junior Cook, Lewis Hayes Quintet, featuring Woody Shaw. Woo, Woody played so much trumpet, man. I I walked out of there. I got a headache. <laughs> it like to hit me in the head. I wouldn't learn all Woody stuff that, that um, after that, you know, or tried to learn it, you know. Mm. And th th let me see. So those are some of the the most amazing concerts. It's probably and I saw VSOP. That was the best band I ever saw. 
and then in one dish, I saw Herbie's in one dishy band. Same time, same year, I saw Miles's that famous concert. That in one dishy group, that could have been the best group overall. Huh. That and 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 VSO, VSOP had to be the best. But right next to it was in one dishy. That was magical, man. Wow, what a band! I walked out of yeah, oh man, I walked out of in one dishy floating, literally floating home. I floated home. Hmm. I floated. I was 12 years old. I was going to say I you floated. were pretty pretty young hearing them. Yeah. I floated home. Huh. I floated home. Do you yeah. remember what they played? They played um ostinato and they no, and they played um it's because they started out with just sounds, you know. Yeah. And then it went into ostinato and then they played something straight ahead. It could have been it could have been um Toys? Buster's tune or, or no, it wasn't toy. It could have been fire water or it could have been um I had a hurricane, but it was something. It was up tempo, you know. Yeah. And that's all they played. Yeah. I, yeah, I know they played. You know when they get there, because I floated when I heard. I never heard anything like that before. Hmm. I never heard anything like that in my life, you know. To me, it felt so. when you when you played with Herbie the the future to future uh, thing. Yeah. The way he took apart uh, Dolphin Dance. Yeah, yeah. I maybe you can correct me, uh, but. To me, it felt a little bit like the M1 Dishi vibe, or uh, in terms yeah. of how he broke down that that uh, that song. It got very yeah. free in in terms of you know in, in uh, and that didn't really happen um, like on any other tune in that repertoire. I think well, on Dolphin Dance, you guys really took it out there usually. Yeah, well, you know, it was been, it, that was really amazing. That whole um, Future to Future band, it was sort of like M1 Dishi, the whole thing, but it was still. <clears throat> modeled on the Miles Davis quintet, sort of, you know. When we did Dolphin Dance, what he did, he rearranged a lot of things, but it was arranged on cues. A lot of those things we just came up with, you know. Mm. We were just, I was I was just coming up with some stuff. <laughs> And Matt, Matt Garrison was coming up with stuff, you know. We would come up with, I would play something and Matt would respond to it. Herbie would just glue it all together yeah. i remember some one night herbie came up with a vibe after my solo that was so bad i'm still thinking about it you huh. know yeah i and i kept telling herbie do we have the tape oh and speaking of that one of the greatest concerts i ever played ever in my life i had been yet yeah, i'm trying to get my band to go there was with vsop And we played at the Strand Theater. That's where, where is that? In L.A. Uh -huh. I keep begging Herbie to find a tape to Strand Theater. Mm. If you want to hear what is possible with music, that night, that was a beyond night, even for them guys. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now I want to hear it, Wallace. <laughs> Oh man! Oh, oh man! Yeah, I have I have like maybe almost ten bootlegs of of you guys playing together that that tribute to Miles repertoire. Really? Yeah, and I I love all of them. You know, I I I study that stuff. Um, oh, I don't have it. Oh, I can send you everything I have if you like. Yeah, I mean, I'm on it. Yeah, you know, it always amazed me. People come to me and tell me they got all this stuff. That's how come I don't have it. <laughs> you know. I'll send I send you an email after that. All right, great. Yeah. 
and there's there's stuff in in France that is happening. You guys play. I think there's one recording of you you and Ron playing my ship together. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah, you know that had to be that had to be the second gig. That had to be um, in the states when we did it because um, we only did it twice. We did <laughs> we did it twice. I never forgot. Tony Williams came to me. Because I had been playing in his band, but this was the first time I was going to play outside of his band a ballad. He said, you think you can do this? I was like, come on, Tony. So we played My Ship, and we played it the first time, and it did really well. The second time, it really got good, and Tony Williams stopped it. He said, no, <laughs> no we're not going to play it no more. So Why? We him do it. I, don't, I, I, I think he was a little jealous. Huh, okay. He said, no, no, we're not playing it. No, no more. <laughs> so we started doing Pee Wee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, you got one, one of the two versions. <laughs> how how did the repertoire change in terms of, of, the, of the tours? I mean, did the guys sometimes call uh, songs out of the blue that, that were... Uh, not the first yeah, so, songs that were associated with the quintet or, you know, some standards or whatever? Well, you know, it's funny. When we first had a rehearsal, they wanted to do standards because they didn't, they felt like Wayne was the dominant writer and we didn't want, they didn't want to do all Wayne. Well, some people felt like that. Not everybody felt like that. So we were doing All of You and Stella by Starlight and all this stuff. And I felt funny, man. I was like, I don't really feel comfortable playing these standards where I play the melody, then I take a solo, then Wayne's sitting up there waiting for me, and then Wayne take a solo, and then, then I play the melody out. Wayne's mm. the star. And plus, these are songs everybody done played in. I don't want to. So I went to Herbie, and because Tony, I didn't want to tell Tony. So I said, "Listen, Herbie, I feel funny about this. Why don't we play the songs that you guys wrote that nobody ever played?" And Herbie's went to Tony and said, "Listen, Tony, we shouldn't be playing this. We should just do the stuff we never really got a chance to play." Yeah. So then Tony said, "Okay, well, I got a tune." Elegy, yeah. And that's how we came up. Yeah, and then we came up with a list of... Um, by the way, there's a, a second VSOP record that never came out. Of you guys? There's a second record. Yeah, Quincy Jones has it. We, we, we did two records that day. Wow. And on that record, it has Orbit's Paraphernalia, Walking, Saucer. Saucer, yeah, great. Uh, my Ship and Saucer, yeah. That's the second record. Oh, that's I want to hear that.